get into the word. And before we do that, we're going to dismiss our kids, as Doreen's waving to me, to Kids Church this morning. Have a great morning, guys. And they are heading off with the whites. As you could tell, I hope, so far, from what we've been doing this morning, uh, through baptisms and through uh, the songs that were chosen this morning as we worship together, we are continuing our, our series on, on, on salvation. And this week, we are in the second week of our salvation series, and the title is The Gift of Salvation. Um, we have more to go in this series. Tim's going to come and talk about the destination. Mike's going to talk about the journey. And this morning, I get the incredible opportunity to be with you and to talk about salvation as a gift. And I, I s- submit to you this morning, I am overwhelmed by this passage this morning as I've spent some time looking at it and just reflecting on my own life and then coming here and watching baptisms and worshiping with you. What an awesome opportunity this morning as we set aside this Sunday, as we do every week, to worship God, to get into his word and reflect on the gift of salvation. Our goal is to broaden our view of salvation over the next several weeks. And... uh, Let's pray and ask that God would do that this morning. Before we do, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray together. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the holy, I'm sorry, carrying out the desires of the body, I think I might need glasses, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. God, bless our time this morning. Speak to us through your word. Illuminate it to our hearts. Give me words, God. We need you 
to speak to us about the truth of this passage in our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So, ever since man walked around and thought, ever since there has been thinking men, they've been asking this question, we've been asking this question, who are we, right, and what are we doing here? I think these questions have been in, in the mind of men since the beginning of time, and, and inevitably, there has been two conclusions, right? Um, inevitably, there's been two answers to these questions throughout history, and honestly, don't, don't be deceived today into thinking that one answer has become now the intellectual smarter answer and has taken over the other. These two answers to these questions have always been, throughout time, what man has been able to come up with in trying to answer this. What are we doing here? Who are we? And what's behind all of this? The first answer to the question has been what? That mass just exists, it's always existed, and one in quadrillionth of a chance it has co collided um, and somehow produced life. And we are meaningless, meaninglessly, meaninglessly, that was a tough word, should have picked another one, <laughs> traveling on this speck of dust. And not only did mass collide and create life, but another one in quadrillion or more chance it collided in such a way in this particular planet, in this particular universe, to produce a life that has developed into thinking people who could ask such questions. The other answer to this question has been, what's behind all of this life, what's behind matter, what's behind everything is a God, a God who has created us, and a God who has created uh, not just created us, but there is somehow a law of nature. There's somehow a law of, 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 of right and wrong. And in trying to discover which of these answers is true, uh, people have written all sorts of stuff, and there's no way I'm educated enough or even able this morning in the time that we have to begin to broach the realities of these and, and, and break these things down for us. But in essence, you know, science... Um, is, is something that, that good scientists will tell you, as I've read, um, they, they come to conclusions through experimentation. And so as you experiment, you, experiment, you, you get answers to questions. But, but what a good scientist will tell you is they can never tell you what's behind what they're experimenting on. In other words, it's hard to see the picture if you're in the frame, right? So what's behind it? C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the only thing we can really look at is us. Who are we? What do we see? Just in an everyday argument, what do we see? When people are quarreling with each other. Well, you took something that belonged to me, or you behaved towards me in such a way that didn't live up to a particular standard, so I'm upset with you, right? Don't we see that? Don't we see throughout the centuries and every single civilization some sense of 
of selfishness being wrong and selflessness being right, that, that bravery in battle being right and cowardice being wrong, somehow we see inherently, um, not created by society, not created by the individual, but something in us that is what we have throughout history called the law of nature. There's something that's right and wrong. And if this is all an accident, that can't be, right? If there's nothing beyond us, that can't be. There has to be something beyond us. John Calvin said um, in the beginning of his incredible work, The Institutes, that, that there's no greater thing than to know God and to know ourselves. But as we approach this topic this morning, what we realize from Scripture is the only way for us to really know ourselves is to know God first. So who are we? We have to answer the question of who we are through the scripture, through the lens of a God who loves us. Now, talking about the existence of God and the evidences of that because of the natural law, because this idea of right and wrong that we have is a hundred million miles away from a Christian God. But here's what we know from the word of God through our God who loves us. He's revealed himself to us in his word, and he tells us an awful lot about ourselves. I'm going to try to pronounce this guy's name, Lao Zi, but it's spelled A-L-L-A-L-A, man, I can't talk this morning, L-A-O-T-Z-U. He's an ancient Chinese philosopher who created Taoism. I looked this up because I googled knowing thyself. How many of you guys know the amount of crap I came up with and I googled that? <laughs> he said this, he who knows others is wise, he who knows himself is enlightened. I don't think... Lousy had the opportunity to know himself through the lens of the God who created us. But as he's revealed to us who he is and who we are in light of him, we get some answers this morning. We get some incredible answers this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, God speaks to us about who we are. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. As we, abro as we broach this topic, and as we communicate about what the Word of God says about who we are, I think what we recognize is this comes into conflict with our culture, doesn't it? This comes into conflict with, with people who have begun over the last couple hundred years to again adopt this, this idea of secular humanism, this idea from Immanuel Kant that we create our own morality. Somehow we just make it ourselves. And it's amazing how someone who believes that we create our, more, our own morality can look at someone else and think that they're wrong. It's remarkable. How can you think anybody's wrong if you create your own morality? What we recognize in true, intuitively inside of us that's true is that there's something above us that decides what's right and wrong. We begin to recognize a God who loves us. And as we look into the scriptures and as we've walked through Exodus, we realize that we, sinful man, are incapable of living up to who God is in his holy standard. And we see that in scripture. We see it in Ephesians 2. We are in 
We are in the midst of raising the second generation of young people in the United States of America who are completely consumed with their own self-esteem, are we not? We have tried to answer the question of what's wrong with this world by telling our young people how amazing they are and how they are the apple of our eye and how everything in life surrounds around them. As a prosecutor at the DA's office over the last almost 10 years, I have seen this drive young people to murder. I have seen it drive people to commit selfish sexual assaults. I have seen it drive people to commit the most horrific crime upon others because somehow in themselves they deserve more. Life hasn't lived up to what people told me it should. I'm entitled to this, and why have you taken it from me? And we watch this mindset of of consuming self-love drive relationships apart, drive uh, marriages apart. Well, you just don't make me happy anymore, and life is about my happiness, so I'm moving on. Have we not seen this? So we got to look at ourselves here. And I think as I say this, the temptation for me and for you is to say, I know someone like that. And if we're saying that in our hearts, we're missing the point this morning. Because it's me. Dead. The word of God gives us bad news here in Ephesians chapter 2 but you don't get to celebrate and recognize deep down in the soul of your being, deep down in your heart, how amazing and how fantastic and unspeakable the good news is until you first come to grips with the bad news. The bad news is you're dead. And what do we see in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3? You're not dead in the sense that you're motionless, right? We're not dead in the sense that we're just laying there incapable of moving. We're gone somehow, but we're like a dead man walking, right? We're like heading down the green mile. It says that you're pursuing the prince of the power of the air. It says that we are walking according to the passions of our flesh, and we are walking down death row um, with Uh, an inescapable destruction and death that's in front of us because of the sin in our lives, because of how we are, in verse 3, by nature, sons of wrath. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 as soon as I find my uh, cheat sheet here. Have mercy. This is David recognizing who he is before God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, listen to verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create 
in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's perspective about who he was reflects Ephesians 2 verse 3. By nature, from my mother's womb you brought me forth in iniquity. I was born into sin. I I have a nature that's bent towards selfishness. Because how sin has entered the world, it has totally infected me. I have a disease that's incurable that leads to death. that, That I'm walking towards destruction. And David, with a correct view of who he is before God, with a correct biblical view of who he is before his Savior, he, he lays his heart bare, creating me a clean heart. And part of restoring unto me the joy of my salvation, David's already at the first step. He's, he's asking God to restore the joy of his salvation because he gets his desperate need for the mercy of God because he understands his own sinfulness. And that's where we got to go this morning, folks. we got to get to a place where we begin to become introspective into where we fall short. And I don't know, I don't believe any of us understands the depths of who we are. I know I don't. I don't think any of us understands the depths of how sinful we truly are. If it was dependent upon man to recognize the depths of his own sin, to receive salvation, we would all perish. We don't know. We need to let Scripture inform us. We need to let God, through His Word, inform our hearts about who we are and how we stand before a holy God. As Jeremiah says, our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. My heart lies to me all the time. My heart lies to me about who I am. My heart tells me I'm okay. My heart compares to others and says, I'm not, na- I'm not that bad. My heart somehow allows my eyes to look in the mirror and think I'm actually thin. How many of you guys are there? I, <laughs> I stand there and I'm like, I'm not, it's okay, I'm all right. And then I see a picture of myself or a video on someone's iPhone, and I think, who's that guy? Who's the chubby guy on the couch? It's me. <clears throat> Our hearts are wickedly deceitful. They lie to us. We need the Word of God to inform us about who we are. We're dead. This creates for us a hopeless and a helpless situation before God. Why? Because by nature, we're sons of Adam. We're born twisted by sin. As Psalm 51.5 tells us, we're like on death row, walking. To escape this hopeless imprisonment, it requires nothing short of new birth. It requires to be, as John 3 says, born again. It requires somehow new life is the only way for us to escape this. I love that this morning is baptism 
is Baptism Sunday. As we saw a symbol, as it points out in the Word of God, of someone dying to themselves and raising with Christ again. There is the symbol of what we recognize is now new life. And so here we are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, recognizing who we are before God, the reality of our state, the reality of the sinfulness that has consumed our lives, the reality that, left to ourselves, we're selfish, we fall short of God's holy law, we treat others not how we want to be treated, but we treat others selfishly to gain for ourselves, to care for ourselves as opposed to others. And what God says is, is our sinfulness has caused us, our, our being born into wrath, uh, our nature being sinful has caused us to be heading towards destru- destruction. But I want you to look at verse 4 with me. I, I can't articulate verse 4 in a way that it should be articulated. But... No hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that that awaits man marching to their destruction under divine wrath. And at this very moment, Paul utters the two greatest words that human speech could ever utter. Look at verse 4 with me. But God. Those two words, but God, are the most amazing two words in the scripture for us in light of our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Isn't that great news this morning? Can I tell you, as we come under the word of God to recognize the bad news, this but God becomes incredible. This great news becomes unspeakable. God did something, but God. He comes by his grace, and it says he made us alive. We're dead And he makes us alive. He makes us alive in Christ. Why? Why does he make us alive? Because of his wealth of mercy and because of his great love. This is not... child's play. This is not... I feel a sense of awe. I feel a sense of solemnness, soberness, as we approach this, as we approach this passage together. This is not some little concept that rises from Scripture that we can just kind of bat around and discuss this morning. This is the reality of the state of our life and the reality that God came with a wealth of mercy and he came with a greatness of love towards those who in their sin 
are his enemy. Isn't that remarkable this morning? A wealth of mercy for divine judgment and a greatness of love. Please hear this this morning. The next part of this passage is for you. Because here's what I recognize in us. That we hear the word love and it hits your ears and it registers through your brain and it pumps out a definition that has most of the time for each of us everything to do with your experiences and your understanding of what love means. Does it not? It's one of those overused words that has lost its power, that's lost its definition. I love pizza. I love chicken wings. I love sports. I love Sunday football. I love my mom. I love my dad. God loved me. We use the word to describe all of those things. But when we're talking about the great love and mercy of God in the context of our salvation, we can't let it register through that definition. Maybe we register the word love through disappointment, through a father who wasn't there, through a mother who didn't treat us well, through a a spouse who left, through whatever circumstance or situation you found yourself in. You, You are registering the word love through disappointment or unmet expectations or frustration, and and it doesn't mean what it should mean for you this morning. Maybe this morning you sit here and you intellectually assent to the idea that God loves, God loves. Of course he loves. God's loving. God loves all of us. God loves groups of people. God loves the church. God loves mankind as if somehow God is partial to groups. But here's what you have to hear this morning. His richness of mercy and his great love with which he loved us. He loved you. He loved you and me in this way. He loved you as you are alone and you're in your room or you're in your, uh, wherever you go in those moments where no one else is around and you're honest with yourself and you're contemplating your life and you're registering your reality through all this subjective stuff that's going on inside of you. You need to recognize something and hear something this morning that yes, each one of us by our nature was a son and daughter of wrath. But as you sit alone and think through your life, you have the opportunity because of the word of God to reach outside of your subjective reality that may be thrown you emotionally all over the place and you can hold on to something that's certain that stands that doesn't move that is true and it's real God has reached out in his wealth of mercy and his greatness of love to you because he loves you let that love transform your heart Let it transform your life. Let it seep into your very being so that you walk away different, so that you walk away as a human being that doesn't feel unloved, that doesn't feel rejected, that doesn't feel broken, but recognizes that in your own brokenness, God came and in his love and grace has made you whole because of what he has done and nothing you've done on yourself. Let it change you. 
Let it turn you into the person that is at the end of this passage that does good work, not to somehow earn brownie points for some God who's ready to hurt you because you messed up, but to do good works because you're a human being who worships God with his or her life because you're so grateful for what he's done. He loves us. His great love with which he loved us. Here's what we see. First, we see that once you understand who you are, there's no greater gift than God's mercy and his grace. So now we've gone from hopelessness and helplessness to hope in Christ. And we see in verse 5, Paul making this contrast again so that we see it. He says it again so that we see it. It means it's important. Even when you were dead, he says in verse 5, even when you were dead in, our trust, in your trespasses, he made us alive together. By grace you've been saved. And look what he's done. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why has he done this? Let's talk about that for a minute. First, he's made us alive in Christ Jesus through the cross. Jesus died and paid for our sin. He was our substitute for us in our place for the forgiveness of our sin. All the stuff we've done wrong throughout human history, Jesus, the only one who didn't deserve to die, uh, experienced the wrath, the divine wrath of God for sin. If you don't think God should have had wrath on sin, please just look around this world for a moment. Look at the injustice that occurs, the children who are devastated by abuse, the, the people that are hurt, that are, that are devastated by selfishness and murder and anger. Look at the relationships that are broken. Look at the way that people treat each other. Just you don't have to look any further than the front page of your newspaper to recognize that, that our world is broken and is sinful and is, and is headed for destruction and that there needs to be justice. There's a debt when someone hurts you, when someone breaks something of yours, when something, someone takes something from you, there's a debt. In my work as, as a special victims prosecutor, I see that debt all the time. I meet with victims, and you look at what's happened to them, what's been perpetrated upon them by somebody else, and you sit with somebody, and you see in their lives and in their heart that something's been taken, that there's a debt. Listen, God is going to make all things right. He has paid the debt for all of us. And as we have perpetrated sin, he pays our debt as well. As we are sinful by nature, he's paid our debt as well. So Paul contrasts this, and he says he's made us alive. He's made it right through Christ, through the cross. God did it. We didn't do it. He did it, and he seated us with him. He's raised us up, and what we see in the scripture is that there is this bow, borrowing of the authority of Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. We get to borrow from that authority and from that power, and we get to borrow on that today in our lives. What we see is not only in this passage does the word grace mean unmerited favor, a favor that God has 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 lavished upon us that we didn't deserve, that we couldn't earn. But it also means the grace of God is a power. It is 
an unmerited favor, and then we see in this word that it's a power. It's an active, securing power that secures your salvation, the grace of God. And he's raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. Here's here's the deal. As we walk out this salvation that he's given us, that we couldn't earn, and that, please understand, we didn't add to in any way. He did it. Not that anyone should boast. But as we walk it out, we see that God gives us the power to walk out this salvation with fear and trembling. He gives us the power to actively overcome those things in our lives that are devastating us. You have the power to overcome sin in your life. He's raised you up and seated you with him in heavenly places. Listen, what is that thing that's plaguing you? What is that thing that you just can't seem to stop doing? Paul describes it in his letters that, that I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Somehow my, my nature is still bent and is still sinful and I'm still doing things that hurt people or that hurt myself. What do I do to overcome this? And God says, not only have I justified you and declared your innocence because of Christ's work, not anything that you've done, but I've now given you the power of his spirit in this new life as you've been born again and you are a new creation which has saved you from the destruction. You're a new creation in him as the spirit regenerates you. As Paul says, as the Holy Spirit grows up within you, he gives you the power to overcome these things in your life. He gives you the power to walk in it. Look at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You get to put on the armor of God. God gives you the ability to fight back against the sin in your life. Look at James 4, 7. Submit yourself, therefore, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You have the power to resist and to overcome. Look at 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God And have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? He's raised us up. New life, spiritually, regenerated us. God allows us to share in a measure of the authority that Christ, seated at the right hand of God, has. Why would God do all of this? Why would God do all of this? Take a look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that he might show in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He has been immeasurably kind to us. He has been Uh, richly merciful towards us. He's shown great love towards us by making us alive in Christ so that he may show everybody how awesome he is. Amen? 
he may put his glory on display, that he would be glorified in all the earth, and every human being would look to him and recognize that he is the God of the universe who has created us, who's taken us through no effort of our own, but by his own mercy and his own grace from death to life, and changed us and created us into a new creation that would produce in a worshipful, grateful attitude good works for him. Amen? Isn't that good news? He's done it to display his glory so that everybody recognizes who he is. So that he, the only one who deserves to be worshipped, would be worshipped. For by grace, again in verse 8, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. At the end of this, let's recognize something. This is a gift. Have you ever gotten a gift that you didn't need, and you put the face on, right? Christmas, everybody's sitting around the living room, and you open it up, and you're just like, I recognized this when I got married, um, that I no longer got gifts. Anybody with me, right? We got gifts <laughs> that she loves, <laughs> right? I mean, as soon as you get married, you open up Oh, it's a cookie sheet. That's so awesome. It's, uh, it's a mixer. It's what, whatever. That, that was so sexist. I'm sorry. That was terrible. It, I love cookies. I love what is produced by the cookie sheet. So that's, I, you know, but, you know, you, you get the, the awesome lamp or the really cool thing for the living room. I, where'd she, she's not even in here. Where'd she go? <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> that was an act of grace right there. <laughs> I think we, this morning, get the opportunity to recognize our great need for this gift. And here's what he says. It's a gift of grace through faith. Hey, Trish. <laughs> it's a gift of grace through faith. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You get to bank on it. And God gives you the ability, remember God gives it so that no one should boast, to not just receive the grace, but through faith, rely on it. Rely on it with everything you have, with your whole being, your whole life. You rely on it. It's an act of faith, which comes, the ability of it comes as a gift of God, this grace and the gift of faith that enables you to rest your entire life on this thing. You, to the degree, I know I've said this before, you are relying on the chair you're sitting in uh, to hold up your weight, and if the legs were to break, you would fall. You are throwing the weight of your life, physically, emotionally, in every way, on this reality. You, through faith, can rely on it. You can bank on it because God does what he says he's going to do. Amen? It's a gift that you can rely on. It's a covenant he's made with us that he never backs out of through faith. We were talking about maybe vacationing in Florida last night and my seven-year-old Nathan looked at me and said, I don't want to go. To which I said, really? And he's like, do we have to fly? And I remember the first time we flew to Florida. He was at first so excited to get on the plane. And then there came a moment at about 30,000 feet 
where he looked out the window and went, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm banking on this thing to work (laughs) till we land, right? There's really no other option for me other than to trust this plane's going to stay in the air (laughs) and is going to get me to where I need to go. And I could see the little wheels turning in his brain as the panic began to set in. You can rely on him. Your whole life is in his hands. And he never lets you down. And guess what's great? It's not anything you did so that you or me could boast. Guess what else that means? It's not based on your performance. It's based on his choice because he loves you and he has given you this great gift and he saved you. Here's the response. We're a new creation. In verse 10, we're a new creation. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what you get to do. God doesn't stop giving. You say, in your wickedness and in my wickedness and in my selfishness, I want to do this with my life. I want to do this with my life. I want to do that with my life. And we are incapable, listen, of understanding what our lives are supposed to be all about, which is why when we stop relying on God in faith, we take our lives into a, into a direction that does not bring us fulfillment, does not bring us happiness, and does not bring us to where we're designed to go. But here's what God says. You are, a, by nature, of sinfulness, you are destined for wrath and destruction. He's made us alive by his free gift of grace that comes through our reliance and faith upon him, which is also a gift. And now you're a new creation. You're born again. And he's created you for good works. Your response to this amazing gift is to do the things that you were made to do to begin with. And you get to live a life that's fulfilled. You get to live a life that brings value and and a joy that goes beyond your ability to understand as you live for him as a response of worship. Your living for him doesn't do anything for you in the sense that you earn the salvation. That's a free gift. But as you respond to how grateful you are for this gift he's given you, he outgives himself again and gives you a life full of fulfillment and value. Not easy, but fulfilled. Amen? What has God called you to do in response to this great gift? As you live in it, as you walk it out, you are going to do things that you never imagined in your own desires you could have ever done. Isn't that good news? There's so much more to say about that, but we are short on time. And I think we need to take one more opportunity to worship God for what he's done. He saved us. It's a free gift. And he did it so that all would marvel for eternity at his wealth of riches and his kindness towards us. Let's marvel together this morning. Why don't you take a moment and let's get introspective together. 
let's recognize in our own hearts how desperately we need him. And let's celebrate together the fact that in our helpless state, in our hopelessness, and in our need for him, he has come through. He has made us alive because of his riches of mercy, because of his great love, and that he is going to repurpose us as a new creation towards good works as we walk out the reality of what he's done in our lives. What a great gift we have, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. That phrase, in light of your word, seems so trite. As we are here before you this morning, I submit that I really don't know what to say in response to what you've done. But we say it with our hearts and with our lives. Thank you. Thank you for the reality of what you've done. God, I pray that you, in the lives of everyone sitting here this morning, would work out the implications of this in each of our lives. That we would do good work. That we would worship you with the way we live, with the way we treat each other, with the way we are married, with the way we raise our children, with the way we work in our workplace, with the way that we who are saved by this great gift can't help but experience the reality of humility, the reality of a love that always forgives because we've been so greatly loved and so greatly forgiven, that we would be a people that represents you in this world to others who are running around trying to find fulfillment and happiness in their own self-esteem and in their own desire to do their own thing. As you have shown us through your word an accurate picture of who we are before you and what you've done to save us, to redeem us to yourself, so that we can be this new creation who loves and worships you for eternity. Help us to demonstrate to everyone this amazing gift so that they would know what you've done. Don't let us scramble back to a faithless life that tries to do it on our own, that tries to grab for it in our own flesh and in our own desires. Don't let us go back to verses 2 and 3 where we're living according to the passions of our flesh. God, help us to rely on in faith and live in complete reliance on your grace and on your mercy and on your salvation and help us to walk that out in our lives every day. Don't let us be idolaters that put ourselves back in the saving position because we cannot save ourselves. But God, allow us to worship you and put you and keep you in the rightful place the object of our worship, the one who has saved us, the one who sustains us with a grace that gives us power to overcome. We worship you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Let's stand.